there is something about a father's anger, which is different. And being the father who was the one who was experiencing that anger, it was surprising to me. I hadn't really thought of myself as an angry person. I hadn't thought of myself as like a super chill person necessarily. Um, But I was kind of disappointed at how angry and frustrated I would get with Rafi. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. On this week's episode of Tell Me About Your Father, we speak with author Keith Gessen about his new memoir, Raising Rafi, a collection of essays on the first five years of fatherhood to his firstborn son, Rafi, who is now seven. The author of the novels All the Sad Young Literary Men and A Terrible Country, Keith is a founding editor of N Plus One magazine and a regular contributor to The New Yorker. He's also the husband of the writer Emily Gold. Listen as he tells us about being raised by a Russian dad who isn't a hugger, learning to reckon with being a dad who sometimes yells, and defining what it means to be a second generation, quote, bear dad. I mean, this was a fascinating interview because Keith Gessen is such a fancy novelist, Mm -hmm. if you know his work, right? And you'd been reading these essays that he wrote in the New Yorker magazine, Mm -hmm. which he is wont to do. (laughs) Um, He's been writing for a few years about being a new parent. And finally, this collection is here from Viking Penguin. Yeah, I think it's nine essays. I loved reading this book. It's so clearly written. Um, yeah. Beautifully He's written. He's a great, great essayist. Not surprising. And this is our second sort of interview this month with a dad who's also an author. Last week, it was Brad Listy for this special Father's Day month and Pride month. And so we threw in this extra episode this month. That's right. We usually only do two episodes a month, but we felt like we wanted to add in this interview with Keith in celebration of the release of this book that's extremely up the alley of this podcast, but also Father's Day, etc. And also, we wanted to thank Keith for doing this interview when he was sick with COVID-19. Oh my gosh. And I feel like he was probably in a child's bedroom when he did the interview. I think he was in a child's bunk bed when he was <laughs> But we'll give him a pass. We hope that he is feeling better. Yeah. Okay, here's Keith. So Keith, congratulations on the release of Raising Rafi. When did you start writing the book? What was the sort of trajectory of putting the book together? Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I wrote the first essay. It was about teaching Rafi Russian. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it right when he was around three. So that was about four years ago. Uh, right as he was turning three, because I'd started speaking Russian to him, you know, when he was very little, it didn't seem to be having any effect. Like I, I couldn't tell if he understood me or like I was just speaking kind of random sounds. And then at around age two, I could, I started being able to tell that he could understand me and knew some Russian words and did it. And then at around three, he, he just, he started having these like interesting comments about uh, Russian. He noticed that I spoke English to 
Emily, his mom, yeah. um, but uh, Russian to him. And he was like, well, why don't you speak English to me? But then other times he's like, no, no, no. I want you to continue speaking, you know. And at one point he says, uh, I was talking to him in Russian and I turned to Emily and said something in English. And he was kind of mad that I stopped talking to him. And he said, mama, don't take dad as Russian from him. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it was just so interesting. And I, and it was also something that, that I was doing that Emily wasn't doing. Um, yeah. it was just, you know, it was, it was very specific to me because until then it, not that like, <laughs> I mean, she was, she was the superior parent. She was the more involved parent. Um, it just kind of felt like it was her intellectual domain and with the Russian. It was like this thing that I was doing. And, and so then I, and then I, I started kind of reading up about it, about bilingualism. And I found this fascinating, um, a diary kept by a linguist, uh, in the thirties and forties who was teaching his uh, daughter German, um, while living in the United States. And it turned out it was like the sort of, uh, you know, primary work of descriptive linguistics with regard to bilingualism. And it was, you know, it was very, it starts with this linguistic description of infants screams. <laughs> it has, it's like, it, it like, you know, like has like linguistic notation for how they sound, yeah. different kinds of screams, but it was very technical and it was very advanced, but it was, you know, I recognized a lot of our own, a lot of my own experiences with Rafi. In it. So I was like, oh, this is, this is so interesting. And I haven't really seen this kind of written about. Um, so that was the first one I wrote and it was kind of around the publication of a terrible country. So it was sort of part of the promotion for it. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't really think of it as like the beginning of a, of a long project, but then, you know, a few months later we were, we were looking for school. It was like time to like figure out pre-K yeah. in New York and it turned out to be super complicated mm. and, and kind of fraught. And we had just had our second kid, Ilya. Um, so Emily was kind of really like wrapped up with, with that. She didn't really, like, and I ha ended up being the one who like was going to all these school tours and it was, I just found it so fascinating. So I wrote an essay about that. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, after a while, and it was these things that like, and then, the, and then the third essay, which was kind of like the big, um, kind of, the, the, I don't know, the, the, the one that got the most response was this essay about anger, which again, you know, obviously, um, moms get mad and Emily gets mad, but like, there is something about a father's anger, which is different. And being the father who was the one who was experiencing that anger, it was surprising to me. I hadn't really thought of myself as an angry person. I hadn't thought of myself as like a super chill person necessarily. Um, but I was kind of disappointed at how angry and frustrated I would get with Rafi. So, and I really hadn't seen it described. Yeah. But yeah. And then, you know, once I had those three essays and I was like, oh, this is like, I find this all so interesting and certainly the most interesting thing happening in my life. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, once I had a, a few of them, I started like secretly making little tables of contents like <laughs> in my uh, notes app and just being like, oh, like what would, you know, what are some other things that are pretty specific to like my relationship with Rafi as a dad that would be interesting to write about? So, yeah. So I guess it took about three, three and a half years of kind of thinking and writing. Well, you talk about dad anger, which we'll definitely get to a little bit later in the interview because you write so beautifully about how complicated it can be in moments where you want to scream at your kid. But one thing I really thought was interesting about, you know, what you, you said it in the book about being compelled to write this is that there wasn't a lot of books written about fatherhood that looked at the space between either I'm a dumb, dumb idiot or I'm like a magical feminist 
to get everything right modern there's dad modern dad like that there's yeah. something in between that you aim to get at yeah and i mean and, and that was a realization i had kind of like when i was finishing the book um and i, I read a lot of books by by mothers mm-hmm. which yeah. were they're just there's just a lot of them and they're and they're all not all but like a lot of them are very good <laughs> um and so and they're, they're not hard to find and then um there's just like a handful of dad books and i had like i kind of would look at them and, and put them away and then and then you know at a certain point i kind of like picked them up and like tried to read them a little bit more more than five pages like i read 20 pages <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. um, but it felt like there was like, like a kind of embarrassment okay. about it by dads and and so you ended up in these two like you're like embarrassed about it so you 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 turn yourself into dumb dad you know or you have this like mission and then you're like super dad mm-hmm. um and it just didn't it didn't like describe my experience and it also just didn't describe like the dads that i knew like around where i live it's just and i don't think it's specific to new york i think it's you know but i think in new york it's definitely the case that like there's a lot of dads who are they're involved they're they're interested they're not i don't think they Typically, they still do less parenting than their spouses. Yeah. Right. And and less housework. Right. But like they're doing, you know, more than dads of previous generations. Right. Have, right. And I described this conversation that I had, you know, pretty late in the kind of writing of the book with my own dad, where you know I had interviewed my second grade teacher for one of the essays about education. She was this wonderful teacher. I still remembered her, and I was in touch with her. And, and I was talking to my dad and I was like, oh, you know, I, who I recently talked to, I, I talked to Ms. Lynch. And he said, who's that? And I was like, my, my second grade teacher, don't you remember? And he said, no. And I said, well, you must have met her at a parent-teacher conference. Yeah. And he just he just laughed. <laughs> and he said, no, I was at work. And okay. it was just such an interesting statement. Like, I also yeah. have a job, you know, but it would just never occur to me to to miss teacher conference because they're so interesting and mm-hmm. and you get so much gossip and mm-hmm. you know just kind of intel about your kid and his friends and stuff but for my dad and like i think it was pretty typical kind of dad of that generation I mean, he was russian and so maybe he was like a bit more kind of reserved and kind of like i don't know cisgendered <laughs> but like <laughs> but I, I don't i don't think he i don't i think that i think it's more generational like he just he's like i went to work you know and your mom did that stuff and yeah, I, I, so that really struck me as as being very different from my own experience and, and that of of the fathers that I know. That's so interesting that you mentioned teachers being the one to sort of connect on that level first, where they're seeing something in a kid and telling them, you know, oh, you're good at this. We just talked to Brad Listy on the show, who hosts the Other People podcast, conversations with authors, and he said the majority of writers that he talks to when they talk about, you know, where'd you get that writing bug or how did you know you had talent? It was a teacher and not a parent who told them or not a dad anyway. Um, (laughs) Did you have that experience ever? Did your dad sort of, I don't know, notice you when you were a kid in that way? Oh, did he? I mean, not like, you know, my, my parents were very like a lot of Russian immigrant families. Um, you know, the dad was a computer programmer and then, and then the mom was also a computer programmer, right? That was like a very, actually like yeah. pretty common or like dad was a computer programmer and the mom was a doctor. You know, it was like mm-hmm. in our family, my dad was a computer programmer and my mom was um, a literary critic. Oh, okay. So she, she was very like involved in literature. So that was kind of her domain and, and she was interested in that. She very much 
encouraged me, but as well as my second grade teacher, Miss Lynn. <laughs> um, whereas my dad was more interested in sports and math um, and chess and things like that, which, which, you know, which were very important to me as a kid and, and sure. as a grown up also. Um, I like knowing math. It's useful. <laughs> yeah. This book opens with the birth of your son, Rafi, and, um, which was a home birth. And your book is also dedicated to your wife, Emily Gold, who is a writer and novelist. She's been on Tell Me About Your Father. Hi, Emily. Um, <laughs> writer of the book's Friendship and the excellent Perfect Tunes, which I really loved. Um, and it talks about the physicality of birth, for lack of a better phrase, including blood <laughs> shooting across the room. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you also describe, you know, you said that against one of your friends who seems like maybe disassociates during birth and eats a whole bag of Milano cookies. They're very delicious. They're very delicious but You cookies. can't just have one Milano. You really <laughs> no, can. Really yummy. They have a nice texture. They They're have so texture. yummy. They're kind of sandy. Yeah. Sandy. Tell the listeners at home about that experience. I mean, you you really go into the details, including putting a shower curtain down because there's so much, there is a lot of blood. What were your memories of that experience? I mean, you know, the whole like first part of the book is about just in a way the conceit of the book is like I I wasn't prepared for, right. for this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it was really striking the contrast between me and Emily, you know, with, with regard to just like intellectually understanding, you know, how birth, the physical birth yeah. happened and, and, you know, just like what having a baby was like and, and, and all that stuff. It was very, um, like you're doing it together. Like you, you, you are, you know, the birth partner, <laughs> right. It is kind of like a useful person to have around, but it's, it's happening to the person giving birth much exactly. more. So. Um, and I was just talking to a, uh, another dad about this, but like, you know, like the, the sort of experience of, of where like the pregnancy is so intense, um, you know, for Emily it was like, you know, her body's changing and there's a, like person like growing inside of her. And meanwhile, you know, I was like total observer who had nothing to contribute, you know, and then like the sort of the birth is, is that, that moment is when you become as a, as a dad, you become like a little bit more, I mean, still very much not happening to you, but it, you grasp the kind of intensity of it. Right. And you're like a witness to, yeah, all that, uh, physical stuff happen. And then on the other end of it, then there's like a person there and mm -hmm. Then you can be like a little bit more than you can like put your hands on him. You can touch me, you know, um, in a way that you can't when, when he's in the womb. So I'm in a writing group with, uh, uh Rebecca Curtis, who's a wonderful yeah. short story writer. And, um, she's always encouraging us to like be more physically detailed and, yeah. and she, that scene, actually, she was, she was like, I need more like grody stuff in yeah. the scene. <laughs> so. We it's have true. her to thank for some of those details. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in retrospect, it does feel to me like the moment where, like, I also was born <laughs> as, a, mm -hmm. yeah. as a kind of parent, right? Seeing how intense it was, I think, helped me kind of um, transform um, also. You talk about getting to touch the baby after nine months, but it is like this experience. I mean, I say this as someone who has not had a, a child and Aaron and I are both aunts, but 
that weird limbo of nine months where you don't know. And you write about that too. Like there's these scary doctor's appointments where doctors are like, it could be this horrible thing or it could be nothing. We'll just wait and see, you know, that you're meeting someone after nine months. I imagine that it, that that's a really strange feeling as well. Birth is scary. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, there's, there's things that can go wrong, right? Yeah. And things, things do go wrong. And we felt, you know, describe in the book, like the kind of long search that we had for midwives that we trusted and we were very grateful when we found them, but I found it very difficult to kind of think beyond that moment. I was like, we got to get through the birth, right? Yeah. That's, I was very focused on that and very terrified, right? I mean, right. you can, you know, I mean, also, as, as I said in the book, Rafi, Rafi had a, a heart condition, mm -hmm. right? Um, that he was, there was like a, his heart was skipping a beat a couple of weeks before the birth. And, and we were really kind of very much thinking about that. And, yeah. and the, during the birth, they kept kind of checking his heart rate and it was still skipping a beat. And then as soon as he was born, it, it stopped doing that, which is what the uh, pediatric cardiologist had, had told us, but you know, <laughs> so nerve uh, it was, it was nerve wracking. And so, yeah, so you're, you're very focused on this, like incredibly, you know, intense uh, process of birth. And then I found it, and I think it to a certain extent, Emily also like found it hard to, to think about what's on the other side, you know, but right. then suddenly you are, suddenly you're there on the other side. <laughs> um, I mean, we had had, and it's, it's funny you mentioned kind of meeting this person after nine months, but like we had this idea that we, we didn't, um, we didn't have a name, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which was a terrible mistake <laughs> um, because, you know, in addition to all this the stress of having uh, a newborn if you don't have a name that's yeah. like another thing that you have to be stressed <laughs> out about and have like meetings about you know <laughs> totally. we have to have a name I mean, we have to i'm scheduling and putting on the google mm -hmm. calendar you know like 5 a.m after this meeting <laughs> um maybe we could have a, a name uh meeting yeah um, titles titles we, Coming up yeah. with the titles. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, yeah, we, we, get, we, we were so dumb that we thought that once he came out and we met him. Yeah. Uh, we would know. Then we would know his name. Yeah. But, you know, he was just like, like a newborn is just like, is, is like, doesn't even open his eyes really like right, for the yeah. first two weeks, right? He's just like lying there asleep and does not really have a personality. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, with the, with the second one, we we came up with uh, Ilya. We 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 came up with that name in advance. That's very <laughs> true. I mean, you describe Rafi yeah. as looking like a little gremlin in a loving way. You lovingly yeah. describe him as a little gremlin yeah. when he's born. But yeah. newborns typically are like little gremlins or tadpoles when they're born. <laughs> so right. it's like yeah. that's a really good point. You hear that story of parents being like, "We met him and we knew he was a wolf you know, growl for a wolf yeah. king," and it's like, "No, you didn't." <laughs> You met a yeah. gremlin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also like, like you know, he came. He was like covered in goo when he came. It was yeah. like some sort of yellow goo, and then like, but then he was like purple. He was a yeah. weird color. Yes. It was just he was. It was not. I mean, we loved him, but it wasn't. Um, and yeah. now he's like this very beautiful child. But uh, at the you know, newborns are not like you. <laughs> How long did it take to find that name? That oh, then became your book title. It was very stressful. It was. Uh, <laughs> Like, I mean, we had a deadline. I mean, yeah. I think, I think at the, I think at the hospital, I'm not sure about this, but I think they make you. Yeah. 
have for a name before you leave. Birth certificate, yeah. For the different birth certificate with the home birth, you can kind of put it all, but like it's like they need to like mail it, like the midwife needs to like mail it like within a week or something. Right. And so she was like on day like five, she's like, okay. Hello. Yeah. What do you guys think? <laughs> so it, yeah, we worked right up until the deadline. Wow. Of day seven. And then, yeah. And then like, I don't know, at a certain point, like I think Emily was like, you know, we were, um, had like a list of names and then, you know, Raphael was on it. And then Emily like looked it up, like the Hebrew meaning, and mm. it, it meant, you know, healed by God. And, mm. and um, we were like, ah, oh, like he was also healed. Was, he had this heart condition. Yeah. So. Now it's immortalized in literature. Yeah. yeah. I hope it doesn't change it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably change it. Yeah. yeah. People are always asking people who write memoir and about their personal lives. And certainly Emily writes about motherhood and just puts it all out there. And now that you have, do you ever worry about, you know, what the kids will think when they're older? How do you, how do you reconcile personal writing as a, as an author? Mm. So I'm actually writing an article right now about, um, uh, on this very subject about kids who have been written about mm. and what they think of it as adults. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's very complicated. I talked to, uh, you know, Shirley Jackson mm -hmm. um, wrote these wonderful kind of comedic uh, essays about having a bunch of kids yeah. um, and living in this big house with them called uh, Life Among the Savages and then uh, Raising Demons is it all. So these two <laughs> collections. Um, and they're really just like, they're so funny. So I talked to her oldest son, who's kind of like the main character in a lot of them. And he's, you know, he's a little rapscallion. Um, yeah. And he's now like almost 80. <laughs> yeah. um, and and he's the executor of the estate. And, right. and he has very fond memories of um, kind of featured in these things. Um, in these creepy stories. And, yeah, well, they're not actually creepy. They're, okay. they're very funny. They're there. It's not in the creepy Shirley Jackson mode. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Mode. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So and and, she, and she, you know she would take them out for like once when one of these was published in a in a magazine or a, a collection had come out. She would take them out and give them get them presents. Yeah. Um, to like give a piece of the action, which I thought was like good advice. You know, it yeah. got them sort of you know invested, um, or corrupted. <laughs> <laughs> um. But, you know, but then other people have had different experiences. It is very fraught, partly just because one one person who had sort of been written about by his mother was like, you know, people feel like they know me, mm -hmm. you know, when they don't know me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But my overall conclusion is that it's when the relationship is uh, not good, when, mm -hmm. when the book tends not to be the main thing. Yeah. It's a thing in this not good relationship, but it's not the main thing, right? right. Like, you know, there was a book and then there was a divorce, right? you know, and, and then the, the kid didn't see his father for 20 years, or something, you know, like something like that. Like, and then, and then you're like, oh, that's not the, you know, and the book is kind of like, people are like, oh, it's because of this book. And you're like, no, it's yeah. this other, all this other stuff that's going on. Um, yeah. So, so there's a kind of totality in the relationship. And I guess my hope is that in the totality of like my relationship with Rafi. Yeah. That overall we'll have a good relationship and that the book will be like part of that good relationship. But if we have a bad relationship, then it'll be part of that bad relationship. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, what does he feel about it now? Cause does it, he, uh, 
have some choice questions for you about your motivations around the title and focusing on him versus his little brother. Yeah. I mean, he's had like, he's, you know, he's, he just turned seven. So he's seven. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's, but he goes, you know, he's, he can read. Mm -hmm. So he will occasionally kind of like dip into it. He will? And yeah. 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 Oh my I mean, God. It's like, it's like it's like lying. They keep sending the publisher keeps sending me copy I, I can't I can't hide them fast enough. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but he read some something in the afterward about uh, how he used to uh, get up on a chair and then put another chair on top of that to get candy mm -hmm. uh, out of the closet. He's like, "That's not true. I don't do that anymore." Yeah. And yes. I was like, "Okay, but you did until like a few weeks ago. <laughs> do that every morning." So he's very funny. I mean, he said he said something to Emily the other day. He was reading, he's like, this should be called, this shouldn't be called Raising Ralph. It should be called All of Dada's Thoughts. Oh. <laughs> I just thought was like, I'm like, so yeah, that's good. correct. That's great. Um, and then, and then, yeah, and then he was mad at me uh, and he's like, I'm going to write a, my own book. It's going to be called Raising Rafi is Fake. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's a critic these days. I wanted to ask you going back to speaking Russian with Rafi, what his relationship is to Russian now with you or speaking to him. The first sentence that he says to you is, I am a hippopotamus, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Do you guys communicate in Russian still? Does he's he you mentioned that he's he answers in English. What has that relationship been like? with yeah, the language I mean, it, and his interest and your interest in him going to Russia or maybe your fear of him going to Russia, which you sort of hint at. I mean, that was part of what was interesting to me initially about sort of writing about it because it wasn't, it felt to me like a sort of parenting decision that was, was fraught because, you know, it wasn't like Spanish, mm -hmm. right? This like language that is, is very useful and you could travel to all these like cool places, right? As well as just like, you know, walk around New York and, and right. talk to people, you know, uh, it was, you know, or Italian or, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, it was this, it was Russian <laughs> yeah. and where would you go? Where would you travel with that? Well, Russia. And even like when I was writing this, you know, four years ago, I was like, oh, do I really like want little Rafi to go to Russia? Like, it's so scary. Like things happen there. Do I want him to be like connected to this history, which is uh, such a bummer. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, that German linguist that I mentioned earlier, um, who features in the piece, you know, he, sort of my joke was like, I mean, he actually at, at one point goes to Germany with his family in 1935, right? So it's Nazi Germany and they spend a summer there and, and like, he's not into the Nazis, you know, they, they go back to the States, but while they're there, his daughter learns German. <laughs> Finally, right after all these years of him struggling and being very frustrated, and um, interesting, they just go to Germany for the summer, and and she learns German. And so I was like, ah, oh, if yes, my joke in the book is like, ah, oh, if, if Werner Leopold can take his daughter to Hitler's Germany, surely I can take Rafi to Putin's Russia. Right. Um, <laughs> but now that's not so funny because right. I, I mean. I, I was hoping to go this summer, actually. I was making kind of plans oh. to go this summer because it seemed like he was old enough and like COVID was, you know, whatever. Obviously not over. I have COVID right now. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it had become sort of manageable. And um, yeah, we're not going this summer. Yeah. You know, so it's, and then it's, it, it turned out there's all these other parenting decisions that are, are not like neutral or like. 
totally positive, right? Like the school you choose, and, you know, the, the whether you play sports and uh, anyway, <laughs> the whole book is about my ambivalence about various uh, decisions that we made or did, but yeah, but now in terms of, I mean, now it's like, there was this period where he was really resistant to it, which I described. And now he kind of goes in and out. Like, like we just spent a weekend um, at my dad's where his cousin was there and his other cousin, you know, there was just everybody was speaking Russian. Mm. And at the end of that weekend, he's like, dad, I'm going to start sprinkling. I don't, I don't think he's the word sprinkling. But I'm going to start putting Russian words into my sentences. Yeah. Interesting. Um, he was very, he, like, he was just very excited about the idea that he might, you know, he, he hasn't started doing this, but he said he was, you know, he was just like yeah. excited about it. So, so that made me think like, oh, like, I don't think this is in the book, but there's this moment uh, about a year ago where he like came up to me in the playground and he said, like whispered in my ear and he's like, hey, come here. And uh, I bend over and he whispers, I always wondered what it would be like to have a data who speaks English. Oh, <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh no, you know, that's so sad. Like. What have I done? And I haven't even taught him Russian properly. He still answers me in English. And like, but I've like alien, like he feels alienated. But then like after this trip to my dad's, he's like, I bet other kids wonder what it's like to know Russian. Yeah. Um, so he felt this like pride. So, you know, so it, like it's, 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 it's a real kind of roller coaster. <laughs> um, yeah. And as of now, he understands me. He answers in English. Um, I think if we were able to be in a Russian language environment, you know, even for a few weeks, it would, it would help a lot. Yeah. Um, but r right now that's, I don't know how we're going to do that. But, yeah. You know, when was it, the last uh, time you were there? Oh, I mean, I was there in January. Okay. Um, but, um, by myself. <laughs> yeah. By yourself. <laughs> yeah. If there's a revolution, if there's a revolution in Russia Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, democracy, uh, rises again, then, um, I think it'll be really fun to take back you Oh, hi there. This is Matthew Philp. When we started producing Tell Me About Your Father back in 2019, Erin and Elizabeth and I did a lot of research into the best podcasting programs. One program that we're happy to have found and still use is Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, now let's get back to whichever specific episode of Tell Me About Your Father you're currently listening to. In the book, you taught you have this great chapter, love and anger, but you also kind of revisit what's brought up in that in that chapter, which is finding yourself yelling. Um, and three-year-olds, which you do a wonderful job of illustrating, are maniacs. It, <laughs> it's not the terrible twos. It's like there's there needs to be there needs to be more more discussion of three, which is cuckoo bananas. Mm -hmm. And you talk about your triggers being dawdling and the really funny description of when you're like, please, we have five minutes to get out the door. Children's amazing ability to become suddenly fascinated by a book or a toy that they otherwise didn't care about. But, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. right before you really just need them out and how frustrating it is. But then you kind of revisit this 
side of yourself too in a, a chapter later on called Bear Dad um, and how much of this is about being Russian. Can you tell the listeners at home what is a Bear Dad in your sort of description of it in the book and um, how it's manifested in you or come out in your parenting? Um, the term emerged, I was, I was reading, um, you know, I read the book, uh, Bring a Baby about how French parenting is, mm-hmm. is so great. And then I read, uh, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, the mm-hmm. Tiger Mom book, which turned out to be actually a very funny and entertaining book, kind of not what I had expected. Um, mm-hmm. but, but still problematic. And I was like, oh, Tiger Mom, like that's the Chinese parenting. Like what's right. like Russian parenting? And Emily was like, a bear dad. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's very clever. <laughs> so, uh, so bear dad, it, bear dad it is. And yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it, the book is, is partly about like, I hadn't, I hadn't been able to like think about parenting, right? I was like, once Emily got pregnant, I was just like thinking about the birth. Mm-hmm. And then once the birth happened, I was like, okay, it's time to be a parent. Like, what, what does that mean? And actually like. For a while, it's just like changing diapers, it's like figuring out, like, why is he crying? Like, are you hungry? You know, mm. is he, what, what's going on, right? Yeah. But then at a certain point, at around two, or, and even more so around three, like when they start really kind of asserting themselves, right? That's when you're in like this different, that's when you kind of like develop a personality as a parent. And I had always kind of like thought that I would be cool, you know? Cool dad. Uh, cool dad. Mm-hmm. And, and I would not you know, get mad about, uh, yeah, or at least taking too long to get ready, you know? And by the way, like, uh, there's alternate side parking God, <laughs> and I have to yeah. move my car. Right. I mean, it mm-hmm. adds like a, another extra layer of pressure <laughs> to get out the door, but also like, you know, some of the daycares kind of get mad at you if you're late. So it came as a surprise to me, right. That I was, that I was getting mad so much. And then, you know, and then I started reading all these books, like, okay, what, what should you do, right? And and yeah. these books have like these different kind of as all parenting advice books. They like they're very committed to their way of doing things, and they're like, here's the program, right? And then you pick up the next book, and they're like, no, no, here's this here's- other totally opposite program, <laughs> yeah. you know. And you can have like whether it's sleep training, you know, whether it's in this case discipline, whatever. And like probably the fact is, if you actually like did any one of these things consistently. You just like followed their program, it would be fine and more, right? But I found, you know, so like there was the kind of behaviorist school, which is just like ignore everything that yeah. he does, you know, mm-hmm. just like ignore it and don't react. Like he just wants a reaction. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Like I'm like <laughs> the Marcus Aurelius of <laughs> dads, right? Um, yeah. And um, I couldn't do it. Like he just like, he would just like, up the ante, up the ante until we got a reaction. And then finally, you know, like he'd like grab a knife or something and we'd be like, stop it. What are you doing? And, um, so that like, so we found we couldn't do that. And then there was this like other school of thought, which is like, you have like empathetic and listen. And there's this kind of famous book, how to talk so your kids will listen, how to listen so your kids will talk. Yes. Um, that was very appealing and it, it's, and it's, kind of consonant with this thing called like positive discipline or gentle parenting, right? Mm-hmm. It has these different names right. over the, over the years, but it's, it's like, it all comes down to you're like, oh, you want an ice cream, but you, but oh, it's, but you can't, it's not, it's not dessert time. That's very right. frustrating. Oh, you must be very frustrated. 
And I like, I found that appealing too. Cause I was like, oh, like it's peaceful. It's like non-authoritarian, mm-hmm. right? Like I found that kind of like politically like appealing. Yeah. But I couldn't do, I really couldn't do that one. Like, yeah. ooh, that was um, <laughs> not for me. No. And, <laughs> and also Rafi, like whenever I would like, you know, this kept happening. Like I would like go back. I'd be like, oh, I like, I failed to do it, but I'm going to go back to the well of like advice from the positive discipline people. And then I would like go and do it. And Rafi would just like, like what are you doing <laughs> like i can see i can see right you can't just do that um oh man they're <laughs> so quick yeah there was like there there was one one of the um i forget her name but she's like the big positive discipline person she she's like you know when you're when like the older sibling is like you know really like harassing the younger one you should you know instead of like you want to just like yell right mm-hmm. what we should do instead is just hug him Right. You'd be hugging him to death. Well, and I was like, oh my <laughs> God, that's punched. so interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, but no, the first, no, the first time I did it, I, he was like, oh, okay. Oh. I, I, instead of being yelled at, I'm being hugged. And then the second time I did it, he's like, he, he's like, you can't just hug someone. <laughs> you can't just, you can't just hug someone for no reason. <laughs> so I, and then I was like, okay, that's not working. So I was like, okay, what I'm reading these like parenting manuals. I can't actually like carry this out. And then I started reading those like international parenting books, right? Yeah. And like those books are all supposed to be about how like Americans are bad parents mm, and yeah. these place, <laughs> people in other places are better parents. And like the tiger mom does that in a satirical way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, bring a baby does it in an earnest way. Yeah. Um, very effective, right. but like kind of evil, <laughs> you know, it just pushes all the buttons mm-hmm. of like american readers <laughs> yeah um, you know without really offering a genuine solution because you like the thing that you realize is like you, you don't live in france yeah <laughs> you know and you don't have you don't have like this free high quality daycare i was just gonna say yeah That's and it. and like you know and there's all this stuff about like you should pause before you pick up the baby and that's why french babies sleep through the night and then halfway through the she she reveals that actually French women don't breastfeed for very long. Interesting. Right? And as when I read that, I was like, oh, of course the babies sleep through the night. They're not breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So they're not like, they can't wake up and like get mama, Good you know? Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, like naturally they're going to sleep through the night earlier. Uh, it's not, it's not La Paz. La Paz. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. And so, you know, reading all those books, and then I read this very interesting book by a, a child a developmental psychologist who looked at children in different places and in different countries around the world. And, and kind of the argument of that book and this whole kind of school of developmental psychology is that like child rearing practices are very historically embedded, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, you're going to parent the way that like your society has parented like traditionally, um, but also like, you know, given the kind of various incentives and like the economic condition. Mm. Right. And so, you know, like the really interesting example in, in that book is actually in Russia and Estonia, which culturally are quite different, but historically, um, and this observation was done in the late nineties. So at that time it was like this post-Soviet period where the economies had collapsed. So the researchers found that the, the, the parents and grandparents did a lot of explaining of the material world to the children, but it wasn't because they were like 
pedagogically inclined, it was because they had no money and they were doing subsistence farming, right, yeah. at their dachas. And so they would like explain to kids like how you raise vegetables and how you cover them against the frost. Mm -hmm. And similarly, like if an appliance broke, like a, a toaster oven broke, you wouldn't just go out and buy another toaster oven because you can afford it. You would fix it. <laughs> right. So um, you would explain to the kid how you were fixing the toaster oven. Right? Yeah. And these are not like conditions that can be recreated in Brooklyn, New York. I mean, if you happen to be in that situation, then that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, but if you're not in that situation, that's not what you're going to do. So reading that was very helpful to me just to like understanding my kind of like socio-historical, mm -hmm. economic kind of situation as a parent. And then the other thing was you do have these kind of traditions of parenting and, and they get passed down kind of willy-nilly. Yeah. Right. Through parents. Right. And the way they react. And, you know, so I had the Russian parents and like my dad was a bear dad. <laughs> you know, he really like not like in an aggressive way. He was like was very, he's a very sweet guy, but he like raised his voice, you know, and yeah. did not show emotion. Like he was not an emotional guy and not a hugger not a hugger yeah yes definitely not a hugger and and like i have no complaints really yeah. like yeah. um but you know very supportive and like very you know didn't go to the parent teacher conferences but drove me to all my sports practices and gotcha. watched all the games and stuff and you know the i had this interesting conversation with the um development psychologist who who wrote that book about the cross-cultural parenting and and he was like, you know, and it's one of those things where like, it's, it's great to read a book, but sometimes it's also, you also like want to read it, like talk to the author because yeah, you, yeah. you'll learn, you know, you'll, you'll get some other stuff. And he's like, you know, I, uh, you know, I did all this research, like I devoted my whole career to like researching like different ways of parenting in different places. And then I had a kid and I found that I was just parenting her the way that I was parented. Wow. And I, I didn't even like the way that I was parented. Wow. And I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> that was very enlightening to me, that, that moment. Because I was like, if this guy can't, <laughs> you yeah. know, like reinvent himself as a parent, like I'm not going to either. And I can't do these things that these like parenting books tell me to do. You know, it's like my personality mm -hmm. is not capable of it, you know, and that's okay. That's, that's okay. Like I'm, I'm like a quasi bear dad. Right. I'm, I'm Americanized. So I'm not like quite like my dad, but like I am, I have that in me. I raise my voice. I should do it not as frequently as I do. I should, I should deploy it more strategically. And, and, uh, but like, it's okay, you know? Yeah. Um, and kids appreciate authenticity. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, to your right? point that your son, your son knew when you were trying all these different mm -hmm. advice tactics. Right. Yes, he's um, like, that's not you, Dada. <laughs> I, I love in that section, Keith, when the author of the the very academic book that you read is like, I I find myself parenting the way my father parented and I hated the way I was parented. Yeah. But you talk yeah. about the tragedy of parenting. You use that phrase. And the tragedy of having kids, which is they're only so little for so long and that I mean my I only have my watching my five-year-old nephew get older from afar to compare it to but like my sister talks about like she can't even think about the day he doesn't want to read with her in bed at night but you also apply that to the sort of tragedy of saying this is I'm not going to be the perfect parent I have to accept that I 
I'm doing the best that I can. And this is who I am, you know, and that might be good enough. It's okay. Like that there is (laughs) something tragic about that. But, you know, also, I think necessary to reckon with if we're going to show up. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's confusing and contradictory because I found when Rafi was born that it really changed my life in a profound way, like more than anything, pretty much, right? That it happened to me. And, you know, it just changed my day-to-day life. It changed what I thought about. It changed what I cared. Um, so in a way, I was like this like totally transformed person. I went from Keith, who did not have a child to Keith, who did. Um, and, but at the same time, I was still the same person, <laughs> right? And, and then like yeah. the same, I had the same strengths and weaknesses and, and whatever. I had the same personality. So I was like, oh, my life has changed dramatically. Um, it's like been turned upside down. So surely I could also become a completely different person, <laughs> you know, if I tried hard enough, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the truth is you, I couldn't, like, I, you can't. Probably shouldn't want to. Obviously there are cases where you will want to not parent like your parents parented, but, you know, it's... Um, but there's room for error. Would you say that? Because I feel like, oh, yeah. you know, it must be so interesting to feel anger brewing in your body like you write with such clarity about sort of the anxiety of feeling like you could get angry enough or maybe you even are angry enough to even hit someone or hit a kid but then you you bury it and therefore don't do the the bad thing but i i feel like not enough men talk about or people talk about you know what that feels like and how out of control and and the fear around that. And I feel like if we understood that more, I think we could maybe forgive the generation of parents and the generation of parents that they came from where it always was a hitting thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe I'm projecting, but that would be my biggest fear is like, oh, I'm gonna make a mistake that feels so catastrophic within the realm of today's parent. And also Mm. coupled with the pressure of what is it that a child's personality is pretty complete by the age of three or something really like, oh, shit, you can't take that back. How do you deal with that kind of pressure? (laughs) Yeah, I I have. Yeah, I really um, those uh, those things when they're like, yeah, by the age of three, it's all over. (laughs) I hate that. Also, I can't be true. I can't be Um, true. No. And it's, I mean, I think, I think they're saying like, it's important to not just like pop your kid in front of a TV for eight hours a day, you know, until the age of three. But like, clearly that's not the case. Like even I, in my late forties, um, despite what I said earlier, I, you know, people can change, you know, even past the, even past the age of 40, right. Um, (laughs) much less the age of three. And that's the thing is like, you're like, ah, I have to be a good parent. And then, you know, and then it's like, and then one day you're like a really good parent and then it's the next day yeah. <laughs> and right. you have to get no up and do it watching. again. And nobody's like, yeah. and nobody, um, nobody remember, you know, your kid doesn't remember how you were such a great parent yesterday. You <laughs> yeah, know? And then, but like, similarly, like, you, you know, you like lose your temper and just like, don't have the patience like one day and but then it's the next day, you know, and like, and you do, you do get like, 
kids are pretty forgiving and like, I mean, they, I mean, kind of sometimes tragically, right? But yeah. have you asked for forgiveness? Have you had to ask forgiveness from Rafi? And how did oh, that sure. go? Oh, I mean, all the time. I mean, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, I was saying sorry about something yesterday and he said, it's too late. It's too late to be sorry. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. And it's never too late. <laughs> um that's perfect i don't know yeah um you know and i like yeah i hug him a lot i'm not i am um kind of a, a hugging dad i just spent um a long weekend with them and there were a lot of uh conflicts between rafi and his younger brother but um so rafi like deploying the hug mm-hmm. oh. um, when like when when elia was really sad he would give him a hug and it was i was like oh nice Melting. Good. <laughs> That's great. I was curious about your mom. I know that you lost your mom when you were a teenager to breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot about the influence of your father. You describe a scene of which you referenced before of being a little kid and a, another boy getting beaten up and you call for your dad's help to come break it up and he yells, she figure it out yourself out the window at you. Fair <laughs> <laughs> dad. Um, but what what was your what kind of a parent was your mom like, and do you see ways that your mom has influenced how you father? Oh yeah, I mean, jeez, uh, uh, you know, I the podcast is called Tell Me About. <laughs> no, we weren't. You did prep you. Sorry, Keith. <laughs> um, I mean, she. You know, my mom was very. I was the younger child, and. Um, by eight years, so I was kind of like the baby. So not quite an only child, but almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was very spoiled, you know, in the kind of context of being like a Soviet emigre. <laughs> so uh, not, not maybe not what what comes to mind <laughs> when I say spoiled, but like, but very like sort of fussed over mm-hmm. and uh, paid a lot of attention to. And and my mom was just very interested in, in like what I was reading and, and read to me until I was seven or so. And I remember that. She read me the Moon Control books. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's kind of the thing that I remember most uh, her reading to me. And yeah, just kind of like, like really was interested in my like intellectual um, development. And I have to say the person in our family who does that is Emily. Like she's really? the one who finds all the books for Rafi. Yeah, like she's like a genius at like finding um, like interesting kids' books for him to to read and and enjoy. And I am like more like uh, sports and yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about sports. How and do you violence? Sports yeah, and violence. Yeah. Did you did you wait for him to uh, show that interest? What is it about sports and men and the the competition is that that's sort of the lesson or one of the main lessons is like prep for the competition of life oh or is it entertaining and uh fun i think it's fun and Mm -hmm. you know i mean my argument for sports which is emily disagrees with it but like you know i think i think boys in particular have a ton of energy you know and 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 um Rafi has a lot of energy <laughs> and you know one way of like working that out is by playing sports yeah right um and it does you know answer like team sports are 
nice for learning how to, you know, just kind of like work with someone. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's kind of a more, I don't know, it's like the easiest way to like make a little team. Like if you are, you know, I guess they do like team projects in school and stuff, but it's always, you know, I remember school and, and school was, you know, actually in a team project, like one person would do everything and everybody else would just sit there. <laughs> right. right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it actually is like team sports, actually, like you have to like play as a team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pass the ball and stuff. So um, that sort of thing. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I'm like, as with everything else, I'm, I'm pretty ambivalent about it because I do feel like I have, I played sports all my life and I've seen like some very un, untoward things and, and, you know, bullying homophobia like homophobia on males sports teams you know even that just like a real it's in like the lexicon of you know these kind of male sports so you know that culture is really a mixed bag but i do i do feel like the actual like playing of sports is is really fun um at this point rafi has kind of like made it clear to me that he doesn't want to play sports (laughs) and i mean but it's a bit of a catch-22 because if you don't know how you're not going to have fun Mm -hmm. you know and then yeah then you're not going to like it and then you're not going to want to do it so like you do need Mm -hmm. i I do feel like a certain kind of like base level of learning how to do the thing and then you can decide um so i haven't totally given up yeah uh but his his brother actually is very athletic so i have my own i have my eye on him (laughs) yeah, <laughs> I mean, I like what you say, Heath, and that essay about that sports taught you how to lose too, like that you learned how to be to persevere and like sort of like the lessons that come with defeat, as, mm-hmm. but also you know winning. Um, but then I think what's good about that essay because my brain goes to like, but Keith, you can't abandon the literary dorks, like you can't. You can't yeah. be a sports guy. You have to be a book guy. Um, but you do talk about kind of walking that line, I think, in high school. Like, I was always suspicious slash jealous of the athletes in the, you know, advanced English classes or the whatever. Where it's like, you don't get to be both, damn it. You can pick one. Um, but you have this sort of poignant ending to that essay where Rafi has to is at a playground and there's like an arty shy boy and some some mean boys and he leaves being friends with the arty shy boy after the mean boys are too mean and you feel sort of a sense of relief about that right mm-hmm. yeah and he may not i mean he may not he just may not want to play sports and that's okay it's <laughs> right? totally I mean, okay it's, it's totally okay and uh he maybe can be in a band awesome i never learned i never learned how to play an instrument so he just got his hair colored uh, blue yes so he looks pretty pretty punk rock yes uh, these days yeah i mean i don't you know so like yeah so the you know the sports i'm like it's something that i really enjoyed and it's something that like i you know i could teach him how to do you know and i've taught him some you know taught him how to skate to an extent and and it's like would love him to have this but only if he wants it and mm-hmm. if you know and if he wants something else then that's great too but it is it is tricky to kind of like know where to where to push and where to kind of you know hang back and i'm still figuring that out Aaron, take us out you're so successful 
is fatherhood the most adult you've ever felt? <laughs> you know, like when you have such an illustrious career, you know, young, I don't know. It feels like parenthood is just like the icing on the cake. But I mean, would you say that? Or do you feel even younger and less aware of what the hell is going on? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, surely it's, it's like, it's the most difficult. I mean, it's the most like yeah. frustrating and repetitive. Expensive, and I would imagine. Expensive. Oh my God. Yes. We didn't talk about that. Oh, Expensive. Oh my God. Yeah. So yeah, the childcare. But you know, pretty soon we're, both kids are going to be in public school. Okay. Um, and that's going to be so amazing. A friend, a friend said when his child entered uh, pre-K, which is when it starts being free, he wept. Oh, wow. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, but certainly it's definitely made me feel like connected to the world in a way that I wasn't mm -hmm. before. Um, you're just going through this thing that everybody else, that so many other people have gone through no matter what else they're doing right exactly. and it really does kind of connect to your humanity in a in a very kind of like basic fundamental way and i have enjoyed that part of it yeah well thank you for being such a thoughtful father yes um <laughs> and for writing this amazing book raising raffi yes. thank you keith thank so much you. for your time yes thank you for talking to me Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.